in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 24. Uh, maybe it's on your cell phone or tablet. Or maybe you need a Bible and there's probably one in a seat rack in front of you. But I'd love it if you could follow along as we finish up our series through the Gospel of Luke. We have been, we've been in, in Luke's Gospel, I think, for 47 weeks. So some of you, it's been a long journey. It's been a long journey. You're like, amen, we're reaching the end, amen. Um, but it's, it's been a delightful journey of really getting to know Jesus and learning about his works and his ways, who he is and how much he loves sinners like us. Well, the Gospel of Luke is going to end our series this morning, Luke chapter 24. We're gonna begin next week through the book of Malachi. So we're going to go to the Old Testament, the last book in the Old Testament, and we're going to begin that next week, the book of Malachi. If you've ever had questions like, does it really matter how we worship God? Or does God really love me? Or is it really worth living for God? I mean, if you've ever had questions like that, the book of Malachi is going to help answer those as we do our series through that to finish out our year. Well, this morning we're in Luke chapter 24. We're gonna begin in verse 44 and work our way through verse 53. Luke 24, beginning in verse 44. When I finish the reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord and you can respond, thanks be to God. Verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and then look into this text together. Father, we give thanks that you sent your son to die in the place of sinners. He was buried in a tomb but didn't stay there. He rose again to offer life to all who believe. And so this morning we give thanks for new life in Christ. That we can be buried with him in the likeness of his death and raised with him to walk in newness of life. We give thanks for that and we bless your name. Amen. When I filed my, uh, my taxes earlier this year, I paid for an online template that would help me complete my will. Now, Liesl and I had done a will several years ago, but our kids are older, there have been some life changes, and so I thought we were due to write up a new will. Some of you are thinking, wasn't tax time a little earlier in the year? And the answer is, yes, it was. I totally forgot about this whole thing of redoing my will until this past week when some family members asked me to review their wills. I know it's a, a solemn and a somber topic to write about what you want when you're dead. But there was this one line in the will that made me laugh. It said this, I want to be cremated and have my ashes scattered over any body of water you choose. Just not the Great Salt Lake. 
That's what it said in the well. I just laugh. A mud puddle, no problem. The polluted Jordan River, go for it. Liberty Park Pond, all right, but not the Great Salt Lake. Don't do it there. You know, a will is a way for someone to say, this is what I want. Or here's what you should do when I'm gone. It's a record of our last wishes, our final words. Now, Jesus did not have a last will and testament, but he did have parting words. He did indicate what he wanted when he was gone. And that's what our text this morning is all about. Jesus looks at his followers and basically says, when I'm gone, I want you to be, and then he unpacks that. When I leave you, what I want you to be is, number one, I want you to be rooted in the gospel. That's kind of what he unpacks in the opening of our text. When I'm gone, Jesus says, I want you to be rooted in the good news. Now, let's back up and get the context of our passage this morning. The resurrected Jesus had just stood in the midst of his disciples eating broiled fish. You get that from verse 42. I mean, it was a shocking day for these disciples. They're gathered in a room. Suddenly, Jesus appears to them. They're wondering, is this a ghost? And then he grabs some fish, puts it in his mouth, and they're wondering if it's just going to drop to the floor. You know, is this a ghost? No. He eats the fish. And they watch all of this. And they're confused and astounded and, and fearful and overwhelmed all at the same time. They're like, we saw you crucified. We know that you were buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. How can this be? Jesus looks at his disciples. Look at verse 38 in the text. Verse 38. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see. The disciples are kind of reeling from this appearance. The whole experience shook them up, but Jesus speaks into this moment and he wants to ground them in the gospel. He didn't want to leave them simply anchored to this short experience. He didn't want experience to be their anchor. He wanted the gospel to be their anchor. And that's what he directs them to in this text. He wants his disciples to be rooted in the gospel. And I want you to see how Jesus kind of explains the good news in this text. Notice how the gospel message is scripturally based so when Jesus grounds his disciples or roots his disciples in this good news, he shows them that the good news is actually based in Old Testament scriptures. We see that in verses 44 and 45. He highlights what was written in the Old Testament centuries before his birth. He looks back at the ancient text. Maybe you could say it this way. Jesus grounds the good news in the good book. That's what he does. Look at verse 44. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The good news, the gospel, written about Jesus, found in the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, this Old Testament, all of those things needed to be fulfilled. Now, this three-part breakdown may not mean much to you, but the Hebrew scriptures, even today, the Hebrew scriptures were divided into three parts. Jews today will often refer to it as the Tanakh. It's an acronym for these three historic divisions of the Old Testament canon. Tanakh, Torah, the teachings. Nevim, the prophets. The Ketuvim, the writings, the Tanakh. Jesus is saying that every part of the Old Testament scriptures 
bear witness to him and the gospel. Look at verse 45. Verse 45 in our text. Thus it is written throughout the, you could say, thus it is written throughout the Old Testament or the Tanakh that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Jesus is making this claim. He's saying that what the gospel is, is not some brand new invention, but rather something that was spoken of in the Old Testament. What happened with his death and resurrection shouldn't have been a surprise. It's what was foretold in the ancient scriptures. God's saving work is based on the scriptures. Jesus, I think this is important, Jesus didn't come along and make up his own version of the gospel. Jesus didn't sit back one day, like here you have this Jewish carpenter, he's like, I don't know about the carpentry industry, it doesn't seem to be progressing inflation these days, you know. I think I'm gonna come up with a world religion. I'll call it Christianity, that kind of has a ring to it. No, that's not what happened here. The saving work of Jesus on the cross, his substitution for sinners like us, and then his resurrection as the source of life was based on the scriptures. It's interesting even to see the subsequent teaching of the apostles. So after Jesus ascends and the apostles have to go out and teach, do you realize they emphasize the very same thing? And that is that the gospel is really the fulfillment of these Old Testament scriptures that had been speaking about it all along. Like take Peter, for instance. He's preaching on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and verse 30. In Acts 2 verse 30, Peter stands up. He begins to preach to more than 3,000 people and he cites Psalm chapter 16. In other words, he goes back to the Old Testament. And this is what Peter says. He says, David, being therefore a prophet, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor should his flesh see corruption. Do you see how he grounds the gospel in the Old Testament scriptures? Again, Peter preaches again in the book of Acts. He's on Solomon's portico in the temple. It's just a few months after the Luke 24 event with Jesus. Peter says this in Acts chapter three, verse 18. He says, what God foretold by the mouths of the prophets, that is Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. In other words, the gospel is rooted in the Old Testament scripture. Paul does the same thing. He's writing to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 15, verse number one, and then three and four. He says this, now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now listen to this phrase. He describes the gospel. He says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. In other words, the gospel is not a new anomaly. It's something that was rooted in the scriptures. The good news of Jesus' death and resurrection is not a novel idea, an innovative philosophy, or a new concept. That is the sort of stuff that false teaching and fake religions do. They develop these ill-fitting sequels that don't match the Old Testament. Do you want to know false teaching? What it does is it doesn't fit the story. It's a weird add-on. That's false teaching. Jesus is saying, what happened to me in the crucifixion and resurrection is not a weird add-on. It's not an ill-fitting sequel. It's actually what was told all along. Like some of you are wondering, should I really believe in Jesus? Is he really the true Messiah? Is this Christianity thing really real? Or should I go after some other religion? No, it is real. It's the fulfillment of what was said long before Jesus. He brings it all to fulfillment. The true gospel is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. God's word pointed forward to a Messiah who would suffer. 
And let me just prove it to you. Like passages like Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, some 700 years before Jesus said things like this. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He was oppressed and afflicted like a lamb that's led to the slaughter. He was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. I mean, you have these prophets foretelling there's going to be someone who's going to be pierced and crushed and even buried in a rich man's tomb. What happened to Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. The resurrection, same thing. It's foretold. Listen to Isaiah 53 and Psalm 16. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, so after he makes an offering for guilt, then it says, he shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days. He'll make an offering for guilt, but he won't be dead forever. He'll have prolonged days. Psalm 16, the Lord will not abandon his soul in Sheol or let the Holy One see corruption. He's not going to deteriorate. He's not going to be carry on in some tomb. No, he's going to rise again. Christ, Christ would be raised from the dead as the prophets foretold. So here we are in verse number 45. Look at verse 45 in our text this morning. Jesus has said, listen, I'm in, I'm in the law and I'm in the Psalms and I'm in the prophets. And in verse 45, it says, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. These disciples were finally getting rooted in the gospel and they were learning that the gospel message is scripturally based. Not only is the gospel message scripturally based, but I wanna highlight this. Jesus is showing them that the gospel message is also Christ-centered. The gospel message centers on him. Verses 44 and then verse 46. Look at verse 44. Everything written about me, Jesus says, must be fulfilled. Or verse 46. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. It's about him. Jesus is saying that the universal witness of the prophets actually anticipates him. In other words, if you would draw a line through the prophets to make an arrow, the arrow would point to Jesus. It wouldn't point to Mohammed or Buddha or Joseph or Francis or Lucas. It would point to to Christ. He is the promised Messiah. He's the central figure of the whole meta narrative of Scripture. It's all about Him. Jesus is showing His disciples here. Just before He leaves them, He's showing His disciples listen, I'm the key to understanding this whole thing. One of the most significant archaeological finds of modern history is the Rosetta Stone. How many of you have ever heard of the Rosetta Stone? It's a remnant of an Egyptian sign that was constructed in 196 BC. King Ptolemy V wanted to facilitate communication in his kingdom. It was very diverse, and so he ordered that the decree be written in three different scripts. Ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, Demotic script, and ancient Greek. Now, the reason this stone was such an important find is because it served as a decoder, bridging a language that was known, ancient Greek, with a language that was unknown, ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. It became the key to understanding ancient Egyptian texts. Now, what I want to suggest is that from Luke 24, Jesus is saying, I'm like the Rosetta Stone. I'm the decoder. I'm the key to understanding this text. It's all about me. You see, from Moses to Malachi, the drumroll of prophecy 
anticipates Jesus. If you had a dot to dot, if you were to connect all of them, they would show you a portrait of Jesus. He's the fulfillment and final destination and ultimate point. He's the goal and he's the end zone. He's the culmination of all of this. Paul puts it this way in Romans eleven thirty six: From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. In other words, time, space, and matter are all oriented towards Jesus. All of history is rushing into his lap such that at the fullness of time, things in heaven and things on earth, it says in Ephesians 1.10, will be united in Christ. He's the point. He's the final end of everything. Jesus himself put it this way in John 5.39. He said this, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. In other words, the scriptures are Christ-centered. Okay, so here he is, Jesus is with his disciples, he's getting ready to leave them, and he doesn't want them to be grounded in an experience, he wants them to be grounded in the gospel. And that gospel is not some new invention. It's actually scripturally based and Christ-centered. And he says one more thing about it. He says in verse 47, it's life-changing. This gospel, this good news message that he leaves with them is life-changing. In verse 47, he talks about repentance and forgiveness of sins that should be proclaimed in his name. Now, when you hear that Jesus died and rose from the dead, you're not supposed to say, oh, well, that's cool, and walk away. Instead, you're supposed to understand, no, he died in your place. He paid the debt that your sin incurred. Paul writes to the church of Rome in the book of Romans. He says, the wages of sin is death. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Then once the death penalty is taken care of and all accounts are settled, Jesus rose from the dead with power over the grave so that he could offer life to all who believe. Now this is significant because I'll bet everybody in this room has had a time in their life when they've wished they could have a redo you ever wish there was a restart button, a reboot on life? Can we just have a clean slate? Could I just undo that day or that year or that decade? <laughs> Could I just have a start over? Do you know the resurrection means Jesus has life and he can give it to you afresh. New life in Christ for all who believe. Jesus is the one who said this, in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. In other words, if you will admit your sin and turn from it, if you will seek forgiveness from your creator, that's called repentance, then he will redeem you and grant you new life. That's forgiveness. And that's what Jesus says in verse 47 is supposed to be proclaimed abroad this life-changing good news. If you repent from your sin, he'll forgive you and give you new life. I just wonder how many of you in this room are walking around with an invisible burden of sin. Things you regret, things you're ashamed of, things you wish you could undo but can't. And you're kind of like, well, what do I do with this? I've, I've really messed up. Maybe I'll try to do some good to offset it. How's that working for you? How do you know when it's going to be enough? Is that really what God wants? No, my friend, he doesn't want you to try to make up for it. He wants you to turn from it and receive forgiveness. Imagine this morning if you could be forgiven of all your sins. Imagine this morning if all of your regrets and all of your shame 
could be taken away. Imagine if you could have new life. Jesus says, the life-changing gospel is what I want proclaimed abroad. If you will repent of your sin and believe in Christ, he will forgive you and give you new life. It's fascinating to me. We live in a materialistic world and you want materialistic answers for the deepest spiritual problems you have. Material answers won't work. If it was a broken bone, you could get a cast. But it's not. It's a broken heart. And you need God's work deep down inside. So turn to him in repentance and faith and he gives forgiveness. The gospel demands repentance, but it promises forgiveness. If you just let go of your sin, if you turn from the lies, if you'll stop your self-sabotage and receive forgiveness, you can have new life even today. One way, if I were to illustrate this, I'd say it this way. Jesus is suggesting that the good news of the gospel means you have to stop doing this and start doing this. Turn from your sin, your own way, all the things you've been holding on to. It's your life. You're going to do what you want. How's that working out for you? Not well. Turn from this. Turn to this. I was uh, walking downtown earlier this week with some of my family. We were getting some dinner down off 4th South at local market. And while we're walking around down there, we came across this sculpture. It's a new city building down there. They've got a sculpture out in front. Maybe you've seen it. It's these two bronze hands. And they're just like this. And it just caused me to think, that's actually what God wants from you this morning. He wants you to say, here's my life, God. I don't want to persist in going my own way because I know it will lead to ruin. I want your way. Jesus, I want your sacrifice in my place. I want your payment on my behalf. I want you. My friends, when someone receives Jesus' gift of salvation, when they come to a relationship with him, it changes their life. We just heard about that, right? I mean, you heard Susie, and you heard Ethan, and Peyton, and John. He changes lives. That's what he does. And so here's Jesus. He's talking to them about the scripturally-based, Christ-centered gospel message that changes lives. That's what he wants them to be rooted in. Before I leave, I want you to be rooted in the gospel. That's the first thing he says. Here's the second thing he says. Before I leave, I'm going to send you on mission. The reason he says this is because he's just talked about the good news, repentance and forgiveness of sins. And the good news is not for the hoarding. It's for the sharing. It's not meant to reach a cul-de-sac in your heart. It's meant to cruise without hindrance on a freeway to all the nations of the world. So Jesus doesn't teach that the good news of repentance and forgiveness of sins was supposed to stop with these few apostles. These apostles weren't the final destination for the gospel. Jesus isn't like, guys, get in here. Shh, 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 get in here. Guys, here's some insider knowledge. Here's some partner-exclusive benefits. Here's the gold medallion priority seating. You love those guys at the airport. Jesus doesn't do that. He actually expects the gospel to be proclaimed abroad. These disciples are actually sent to the nations. That's what Jesus does. Look at verse number 47. Verse 47, again, it says that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in Christ's name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. I want you to picture this huge boulder, like the biggest one you can hold. Have you pictured it in your mind? Some of you are like, it's this big. (laughs) Some of you guys think it's this big. It's not. Okay, you've got this huge boulder. Can you picture it in your mind? A huge boulder and a placid pond. You walk up to the edge of the pond and you know exactly what you want to do. You know what you want to do. 
you want to throw this huge boulder into the placid pond. And so you throw the boulder and it soars through the air and you think to yourself, I didn't know I was that strong. And suddenly it's like sploosh. The pond gulps. It swallows down the stone and then it belches out these ripples. Those ripples spread across the whole body of water. The stone struck the pond in one spot. But that became the epicenter of these concentric waves that go to the end of every shore. Friends, the gospel of Jesus splashed into human history at the fullness of time. And the ripple effect has been spreading across the globe ever since. Do you know what the ripples are? Do you know how the waves of the gospel reach the ends of every shore? It's by means of disciples who live on mission. Jesus sent his disciples on mission to the nations. You know, it's no mistake that one of our core rhythms here at Gospel Grace Church is sent on mission. We live on mission. Why? Well, because we believe that healthy disciples gather in worship, learn in studies, live in community, serve on teams, and then they live on mission. They go. Because even as the Father, this is what Jesus says, even as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Here's Jesus, and he looks at his followers, and he sends them out to the nation. He wanted his name to be proclaimed to all the nations. The Greek is panta ta ethne. He wanted the blessing of the gospel to reach all people groups and all language groups. He didn't want it to be cloistered. He didn't want an insider's club of one ethnic group. Instead, he wanted people from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation to one day be gathered around the throne. That's what you see in Revelation 5.9. This too, my friends, listen, this too is what the Old Testament talked about. This was foretold long before Jesus' birth. Take, for instance, Abraham. Think about Abraham for a second. And here we're talking about how the good news is supposed to reach the nations. Think about Abraham in Genesis 22, 18. This is what it says. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. God told Abraham, one of your offspring is actually gonna bless all the nations of the world. Now, did you catch the reference that I said? Where was that? It was in Genesis 22. Now, for some of you, there's bells going off and flags going up. You're like, Genesis 22. I know what that story's about. Genesis 22 is where God told Abraham to take his only son, the one who he loved. That's what it says in the text. His only son, the one who he loved. Take that son up on Mount Moriah, which is later located in the city of Later in history, that area is going to be known as Jerusalem. Take your only son, the one that you love, up Mount Moriah, later known as Jerusalem, and sacrifice him there. And so Abraham begins this trek with his boy. They start the ascent, and Isaac, the son, looks at his dad, Abraham, and says this in verse number seven, of Genesis 22, he says, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb. At the top, Abraham binds his son, lays him on the altar, raises the knife to slay Isaac as the Lord commanded, but just before the death blow reaches his son, the Lord stops him and the Lord provides a ram in a nearby thicket. Isaac wasn't the lamb to be slain, but one of Abraham's later descendants would be. His name is Jesus and he's the offspring that would be the blessing to all the nations. 
You see, that's what was promised long before. And so when Jesus looks at his disciples, he's kind of like, this is what's been talked about for so long. There would be an offspring of Abraham who would be a blessing to the nations. Go share my name with them. Tell them about me. You see, the good news was meant for the nations. It was spoken of before Jesus was born. We looked at Abraham, but also consider the psalmist. In Psalm 96.3, it says this, declare his glory among the nations, the panta ta ethne, all the nations, his marvelous work among all the people. The good news wasn't meant for us four no more. It was meant for all the nations of the world. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven: all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. This is good news for all the nations. Let me point you to one more place in the Old Testament that foretold the good news going to all the nations. It's in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 25, 7 and 8, it says this, he shall swallow up on the mountain of the Lord the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Isaiah 66, the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. So in our text this morning in Luke 24, 47, Jesus is telling his followers to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations because that's been the plan all along. What's beautiful in all of this is that God's grand plan to spread the good news of the gospel to the nations of the world, his grand plan uses means. In other words, he could have spread his message of redemption to the nations of the world without any of us. Have you ever thought about that for a minute? I mean, just think. Okay, he wants his name to be spread abroad, hallowed in places it's not, go to the nations and people groups of the world, and he could have done that without us. In other words, he could have used visions, a voice from heaven, a burning bush, dreams. I mean, he could have used all sorts of things, but instead he uses ambassadors, disciples like you and me. Have you ever thought about the extent that God has used to employ means, people, <laughs> in the process of evangelization? I mean, I was just thinking about this in, in passages like Acts chapter 8 or Acts chapter 10. Like the lengths that God goes through to use people in the process of sharing the good news. So Acts chapter 8, there's this guy, he's an Ethiopian, he's in a chariot, and so God sends an angel. to. So instead of God just like opening up heaven, telling the Ethiopian, hey, let me tell you what that scroll of Isaiah 53 is about. It's about me. I mean, that would have been like the economic way to get it done. The more precise way. But instead, he sends an angel to a guy named Philip. He says, Philip, I want you to go on a long hike out into the middle of nowhere, a desert place where this road passes. And I want you to wait there until a chariot comes by and then see if you can hitchhike on the chariot. And then when he picks you up, then take a look at the scroll. And when he unrolls the scroll, tell him about Isaiah 53. And, you know, I mean, all of this. So Philip goes on a long walk and he waits next to the thing. And I mean, you've got an angel of the Lord and you've got him moving places and all this stuff because God uses means. He uses people in the process of sharing this good news. Or I was thinking about Acts chapter 10. There's this guy named Cornelius. Have you ever thought about that story? Man, like, here's a guy that fears God, but he doesn't know about Jesus. And it would have been great just to give him a vision of Jesus. Done. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he sends an angel to Cornelius and tells him, send some messengers up to a place called Jaffa. There's a guy named Peter there. Tell him to come on a journey back down to Caesarea. He gives Peter three different visions because Peter wasn't going to go on this long journey. He didn't like taking hikes to Gentile places. So, I mean, three times he has to have this vision. And finally, okay, Lord, okay, fine. And then Peter goes kind of reluctantly on this trip and he gets to the Gentile's house and then he preaches the gospel and then this guy saves him. And you're just like, Lord, you could have done this more quickly. It's kind of like a long sermon. Couldn't you make this more concise? Jesus, couldn't you whittle this down a little bit? But I love what he's showing us in texts like that, and that is this. He wants to use people like us 
in the process of spreading his name and his fame to the nations. Here's what we're learning. Jesus' disciples are sent on mission to the nations. But we find that they're not going to go alone. Jesus' disciples are sent with the Spirit. I mean, this could have been a scary thing, right? I mean, I'm going to send you out to the nations of the world. You're like, I have to go by myself. No, you're not going to go by yourself. I'm going to empower you with my Spirit. I mean, talking to strangers in strange places may not be up your alley, but you're not by yourself. You aren't sent alone. Verse number 49, look at verse 49. Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. What is this power from on high? What's the promise of the Father that verse 49 is talking about? Well, we, we get it expounded upon in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Listen to Acts 1, 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This empowerment was precisely what happened on the day of Pentecost. These disciples, I mean, we're talking like just a couple months later. These disciples in Acts chapter 2, it says this, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak to men from every nation under heaven, to the nations in the power of the Spirit. And that's what he wants us to do. Believers sent on mission to the nations with the Spirit. You know, it's passages like Luke 24, 47, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be claimed in his name to all nations. It, it's passages like that that took some of our own members to the other side of the world. And why is Bree or Daniel or Christy, why, why are they in Southeast Asia? Because Jesus said this. Why is Emmanuel and Regina Juma in South Sudan? Because Jesus said this. And I wonder if he's saying something to you this morning. I wonder if he wants some of you to go to the nations and share his name. Perhaps you don't have to go across the globe. Maybe you just need to go across the street or across your campus. But share the good news with a friend or neighbor. Jesus is getting ready to leave he looks at his disciples and tells them he wants them to be rooted in the gospel, sent on mission. And here's the final thing as we close. He wants them to be active until he comes. Rooted in the gospel, sent on mission, active until he comes. There are two simple things that stand out to me in the closing of Luke's gospel. As we wrap up this long series, it's worship and witness. We've been on a long journey through this book and these final few verses remind us that we're not supposed to be stagnant or lazy or lackadaisical while we wait for the Lord's return. Let me set the stage. There's a gap. You can't really see it in our text, but it's written about more in Acts chapter one. But there's a gap between verse 49 and verse 50. It's about a 40-day gap. It's where Jesus teaches on the kingdom. You can see it in Acts 1-3. Jesus gathered his disciples together after those 40 days. I think this must have been a rather intimate final goodbye. He gives them these missional expectations. He reminds them of the spirit. But then as they're gathered in close, what he does is he blesses them. And I was just reflecting on the end of this text. Look at verse 50. Then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And I just think about these, these followers gathered around Jesus. This would be their last time with him. And you just get this idea that he's like looking at them. You know, he's thinking about each one of them. Years that he spent with them. And he lifts up his hands. He's gonna say Goodbye but he wants to leave them with a blessing. And I don't know what blessing 
he said. Maybe he recited the famous ironic blessing from the book of Numbers. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he be gracious to you, make his face shine upon you and give you peace all of your days. And it's like they're receiving his blessing, but something strange starts happening while he's blessing them. Do you see it there? Verse 51, while he's blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And so he's got his arms stretched out over them. It's like this very intimate moment when all of a sudden he starts lifting up off of the ground and ascending towards heaven. This is what it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. It explains it this way. As they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they're gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why are you standing looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way that you saw him go. So look back to our text. These angels say, don't keep staring up into heaven. He's coming again. And so in verse number 51, how do they respond? 51 of our text says, so they just worshiped. I love that. Stop gawking upward and start bowing down. Worship Jesus. I mean, what are we supposed to be active in while we wait for his return? Are we supposed to be gawking at the heavens like people will do later this week with the solar eclipse? You'll see all these people in Utah going like this. Is this how we're supposed to stand and spend our days? No. We're not supposed to be gawking up. We're supposed to be bowing down. Christ followers are supposed to be active in worship. You've heard whistle while you work. But Christians are supposed to worship while we wait. That's what we do. We worship while we wait. And we worship Jesus. I mean, I think this is a point. I know it's the end of the book. We've spent a long time in Luke. But this is a point that the gospel writer has been trying to drive home all along. Worship Jesus because Jesus is God. I mean, think, if Jesus wasn't God, then worshiping him would be idolatry. Worship Jesus because he is God. I mean, think about the, the book that we've gone through, the Gospel of Luke. Only God can receive worship. Only God can open people's minds. Only God can forgive sins. Only God has the kingdom of heaven. Only God commands a multitude of angels. Only God can heal the sick, cleanse the demoniac, and calm the winds and waves. Only God can do those things. And Jesus did those things. Jesus is God. Worship him. Jesus is divine, and here in this text, as the book closes, he ascends into heaven. Now, ascension of Jesus is theologically important because you're like, what is he ascending to do? I mean, he's ascending to heaven, but why? Well, he's ascending to heaven to sit on the Davidic throne and rule and reign as king of kings and lord of lords until all his enemies are his footstool. So the ascension's important. It shows that he is the king. And not only is he the king, but he's our high priest. The ascension is important because what is he doing up there? Well, when he ascended into heaven, he acted as our great high priest. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. He went into the heavenly holy of holies. He brought his atoning sacrifice, this offering once for all time, namely himself, so that once for all, through his blood, he could open a new and living way and help us draw near to God. That's what he's doing. He ever lives to make intercession for us. That's what he's doing. So Jesus is the son of God who reigns as king of kings and ministers as our great high priest. Worship him. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be active in worship. And finally, as we close, Christ's followers are supposed to be active in witness. Verse 48 says this, you are my witnesses of these things. I love that phrase because 
it means that we're not judges of the earth. We're not the policemen of our populace. We're not the wardens of culture. We are witnesses of Jesus and his redemptive work. In other words, we have the great opportunity to share the good news of Jesus and how he loves sinners. We get to welcome people into his family through faith in his name. And so we gather each week, just like this. We gather on the Lord's day. We gather on Sunday to remember the resurrection of Jesus. We do it each week. And in doing so, we join with two millennia of Christians who have done the same. Here in this place, as we gather and exalt Jesus, this becomes a worship center and a witness center. And may we continue to do the same until all the nations praise his name. Let's close in prayer. Lord, our heart's cry is that of the psalmist. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. So we just ask this morning, would you be gracious to us? Bless us and make your face shine upon us so that your ways may be known in the earth. Your saving power among all the nations. Lord, we long for all the peoples of the earth to join in worshiping you. And so use us, Lord. Use us in your mission. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you just take these next few moments as the instruments play and just reflect on the word of the Lord and respond to him. Perhaps this morning you just need to be rooted in the gospel. Maybe this morning you need to receive Christ for the first time. You need the life-changing good news that if you repent of your sins, you can be forgiven. Do you know you could do that right in your seat? You could just pray in your heart to God. Admit that you're a sinner. Call upon Jesus and believe in his name. Perhaps you're here this morning and maybe you're burdened about, about the great mission Maybe God wants to send you on mission. Perhaps you're here this morning and you just need to be active in worship and witness until he returns. Let's reflect on the word of the Lord together as we close.